This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Apprenticeships are back in a big way. The apprentice concept, most people think of like, you know, a blacksmith in 1780 or something, uh, having his apprentice or maybe someone who does welding or, or sort of the skilled trades. Uh, there's no reason to make that association. The concept of an apprenticeship is the most natural, human, commonsensical way to learn and to establish expertise, confidence, knowledge, a network, and a career. Working alongside someone who's actually doing and asking you to help them do the things that you want to do or that you want to understand to create value. The apprenticeship of the 21st century is back. More people are understanding that apprenticeship beats the hell out of sitting in a classroom learning a bunch of stuff that has no relation to anything. You have no clue if it's going to be valuable to you once you get out there to try to create in the world. So why not apprentice with the movers and shakers today, with entrepreneurs and startups, because entrepreneurship is the thing that's going to carry you, whether you ever start your own business, that mode of thinking and working in a future where machines and software can do more and more boring rote tasks. And Praxis is the apprenticeship program. When you think apprenticeships, you think Praxis. We place you at a startup, you apprentice there in addition to a professional boot camp before you start so you don't go in uh, completely drowning in over your head. You have coaching and an intense curriculum throughout the program and you end with a full-time job. It's learning by doing. It's apprenticeship, not just for welders, not just for coders, apprenticeship for people interested in the startup world and marketing, sales, operations, even roles where you're not sure exactly what you want to do, but you know what you want to learn. Praxis apprenticeships, discoverpraxis.com. Check it out if you're interested or somebody else, you know, how did I do with that, uh, pr- commercial TK? That was just like right off the cuff. Oh man, that was pretty fantastic, dude. Pretty fantastic. Whoa, if I, speaking of fantastic, what's, what's going on with your voice? You have a new microphone. I have a new microphone, man. And it's totally changed my personality. <laughs> There's because... more bass in your voice. Now everyone's <laughs> yes. going to know. Now people are actually going to know which one of us is the black guy. <laughs> that's that's so racist dude there's there's a meme of a, a little black kid where it looks like he's saying that's so ra- like that's racist we, we actually need to have an audio version of that that plays every you just press a button time i choose to yeah it's true though because it's with, like, the, with the crowd that claps yeah because people are like okay i know one of these guys is black but i can't tell which one because yeah, right. you had like this you had like the filter that filtered out all the bass so we sounded at the same frequency but now I got the I got the big Carson thing going on. Oh, that's <laughs> racist. I think that's racist, even though I'm black to imply that you've got the advantage now, though. Now it's you're clearly cooler than me uh, before. It was, you know, your content. But now you've got the content and the style. So what what kind of mic did you get? Um, so it's it's the one that you told me. I, I forgot the name already. It's like the ATR 2100. I'm rocking, baby. Same one that you're rocking. Dang man. it. I thought maybe there was a setting I could switch on mine that would add some bass, but it's just, I guess, I guess there just isn't my physical limitations have been met. So you, you and Ryan Ferguson uh, both recommended this one. Um, I reached out to him as well. I was like, hey, Isaac uses this one. What, what, which one do you use? And he's like the same one. I was like, man, all the greats, all oh, the greats. Oh, okay. So I make a recommendation and you go ask Ryan Ferguson. And <laughs> Dude, you know what? The best part about having a mic is it came with this little stand. 
And so I haven't kind of figured out what I'm going to do with this. This is my first time using the mic. And so the stand forces me to kind of lean in. And there's something about the physical act of leaning in to make my points that alters my personality. It yeah, changes. I thought you sounded sort of Sheryl Sandberg-esque today. Yep, that's it. That's it. I'm leaning in. That's it. Um, <laughs> well played, man. But that's so, sexist. <laughs> uh, yeah, for anybody who does any podcasting or is interested in doing podcasting or even if you're going to be interviewed on someone else's, even if you're only going to be interviewed once, I would just order this on Amazon. It's like 79 bucks or something. It's the Audio-Technica 2100, ATR 2100. And it just a uh, USB plugs right in. It's super simple. I also have the Blue Yeti mic, which like everyone raves about. I hate that thing because it picks up way too much stuff. It's so sensitive. If I tap on the table or anything, it picks it all up. But this one is just a great, it's not good if you have more than one person in a room, but just directly speaking into it, the uh, ATR 2100 is a good mic. So, um, the, the one that you mentioned, the what is it, the Blue Yeti? Isn't that what uh, Zach Slayback uses? Yeah, Zach has that. Derek has that. I have one. Uh, pretty much everybody I know recommends the Blue Yeti, and so I got it, and it's more expensive than this one because my original ATR, the, the uh, cord shorted out because it kept getting bent uh, when I was packing it in my bag. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll get the Blue Yeti. I'll, I'll go up a notch, and I don't think the quality comes out as good. So. Yeah, I can, I can hear in, in Derek's voice when he talks and in Zach's voice, it, it kind of lacks the authority. Um, and I, I was wondering what that was. It's probably the microphone. What's up, guys? We'll What's give up, them fellas? a benefit of a doubt and say it's the microphone. <laughs> it's the microphone. Wait, that's like it's when I mic- kicked your butt in basketball and you said it was the shoes. Dude, you keep bringing this up. I mean, I feel <laughs> like I feel like you won't let this die. So because you refuse to have a rematch. <laughs> Listen, man, I, I think we need to have a have a rematch. Seriously. All right. So and, uh, by, by the way, speaking of hoops, when I was at home in Chicago. I, I actually beat my 12-year-old nephew uh, in a game of hoops. We played to six. Wait, I shut him out six to you're, zero. You're bragging to me that you beat a 12-year-old. Well, it was revenge because he <laughs> kicked my butt the first time. <laughs> when he was so, eight yeah. at Christmas four years yes. ago. <laughs> so it's been like years. I can't stop thinking about it. So I've just been like doing push-ups, running every day. <laughs> the last four years has just been a montage. You've got a poster of your nephew on the wall. You've like studying his game, all of his weak points. Oh, I'm, like, call, I'm calling my brother, asking him about him. What are his weaknesses? What are his bad habits? <laughs> <laughs> Does so he always go man. left? Can I? <laughs> oh, jeez, that's amazing. I wish I could have been there. See you just like stuffing it down his throat, yelling at him. You know, I, I went down. I went down to the court the other day, and there was a guy. He was probably like twenty, and I was just doing my shooting hoops routine by myself. And it was kind of rainy out, uh, which I always like. Um, and cause you just feel like kind of a badass. Like dude, you feel like you're in an '80s montage when you're you know doing any kind of physical activity in the rain. And he comes up, he's like, do you want to play? And I'm like, oh, you want to play 21 or something? He's like, no, let's play one-on-one. I'm like, okay. And, uh, dude, I just manhandled this guy. I just, I finally embraced what my brother has been doing for years, which is to realize that we Morehouses have like no actual game, like no jump shot, no. And just, especially in one-on-one, just back the dude down into the paint until he falls over and make a layup. And I just did that. I was, it was 11 to one. It was great. <laughs> Dude, you said it was raining too? Oh, yeah, because he kept slipping. He was like, oh, the pavement. And I was like, hey, man, same disadvantage to both of us. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait, were you were you singing highway to the danger zone? <laughs> no, usually when I play basketball, if I start beating someone, 
Uh, I may I rub it in even more by singing "This Girl Is on Fire" by Alicia Keys. Um, oh man! <laughs> because then they're like, "What? What is wrong with this guy? He's singing in this falsetto voice. This girl is on fire, and he's still beating me." Yeah, that's my go-to. It's the mental games. Hey, so speaking of mental games, I need wait, you wait, to- wait, 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 wait. Before we go into that, wait. Before we go into it, you know it, I like to control the conversation. I, I, I know that's racist. <laughs> um, <laughs> I need I need that button, dude. I need that totally button. Need now. A button. <laughs> the best part is that you know there are people that are genuinely upset that I'm playing the race card right now, even though we're clearly doing it humorously. Oh, and, and I'm sure there's people who are upset. Like, man, Isaac is like a little bit insensitive, you know, like race and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. I'd be disappointed if nobody was, but. (laughs) Hey, dude, so I got to add one little thing to your commercial that you got to find a way to incorporate this in there. So um, in Robert Greene's book, Mastery, uh, he has an entire chapter on apprenticeships, and he describes an apprenticeship as the process of submitting to reality. So that just sounds so like dark and ominous and like, you know, sci-fi like powerful because what is, I mean, this is why I love economic thinking so much because what, what are most people getting in the classroom setting? It's a deliberate pretend world that's deliberately keeping you from what the real world is and saying, let, let's not let you learn by bumping into reality. Let's tell you how things ought to be or theories you ought to know instead of just like, let's understand how the world actually works, not what we wish it was, whether it's political science and what the, what a state should be and how laws should be made or whether, you know, whether it's in science, this and this chemical and this ratio is to, is to produce it. No, let's like get messy and bump into actual reality. It doesn't matter whether or not you, you know, wrote your paper technically correctly with, with all of your, you know, rules of grammar. What matters is reality. Does the market respond to it and say, this is good writing. It's persuasive. I'm going to act on it or not. And that reality smacks people in the face sometimes when they come out of school. I, I really love that. Oh, man. And it's so easy to just kind of look at the world as stupid when they're not buying what you have to say. And uh, there, there is nothing like the process of just forcing yourself to acknowledge that if people ain't buying, you're not delivering. That's that's very humbling. Huge. Oh man. Yeah. That is some good stuff. Yeah. We we have a lot more to talk about on apprenticeships. I mean, this, you know, we've been we've been pushing this for three years with Praxis. And when we started, we were really early. Now we're a little bit early, but it's happening. People are getting it because it's so common sense. I mean, it's just it's inevitable that people are gonna sort of rediscover, wait a minute, why did this form of learning kind of get placed on the back burner for all these years. This is actually really brilliant, you know? Um, I got to psychoanalyze you though. So lay down on your couch um, because I I truly, I need to understand you and you need to understand yourself because this is just a really weird occurrence, okay? Wait, are we being for real right now? Oh yeah, this is totally for real, dude. Dude, this sounds eerily similar to a creepy meditation experience I had before. That I told you about years ago. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about that in a second. So we have our uh, education department meeting earlier this week, and um, you and Cameron are talking about all these, you know, all these. Uh, curriculum updates, all these tasks, all these things that we're, we're working through and kind of like, okay, what's the status of this? And Cameron's like, Hey, where are we at with this, this, and this? And you're like, Oh, I've completed all of them. And they were all in Asana. Cameron was like, let's go down the Asana list, which is what we use for a task management. 
and let me look at the things that are in your queue on Asana TK under the education department. Where, where, what's the status of this, 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 and this? And, and none of them, the deadline had passed. They were all like coming up soon. And Cameron was like, just wanted to know where we were. And you're like, oh, done, 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 done. I just haven't had time to go in and check them off. And in that moment, I almost felt like you, you might not even be human. Like that is an insane person to me. The fact that you have done the tasks, but you don't <laughs> mind just leaving them on. Like the whole reason that you do tasks is just so that you can cross them off on a list, just so you can click that. It doesn't even matter if the task is intrinsically valuable. The fact that you get to press that button and watch the task say completed and go away. You're not just like racing to do that. You let days go by and you don't go in and check off the list. I don't understand how that works, dude. So you use Asana to tell you what to do, but when you do it, you don't actually check it off. That doesn't even bother you. I think the most important thing is to <laughs> to never be left defenseless, you know, to, to be in a position where you can always give an account for your work. You know, it's OK to be challenged. It's OK for people to be like, hey, what the hell are you doing, buddy? Or, hey, man, did you get that done? As long as you're like, oh, yeah, I got it. Let me email it to you right now. But, um, yeah, so I, I just use Asana to, like, keep my conscience clear. Like, wait, I need to work on this. I, I don't want to forget this. Let's get this done. I don't know though. You don't I, get I, any I, pleasure in checking things off the list. Yeah, I do. But I, but I, I also think that I tend to, I, I'm a binge kind of guy. I, I approach TV like this. You and I both know that I don't watch TV shows until they're finished. So like a, a show like stranger things or game of Thrones, I'm chomping at the bit to watch these shows but I'm waiting until they announce the final season because on one Saturday, I'm just going to watch everything. <laughs> and that's the only way I can enjoy it. So in a similar way, I like chunks. I have I like having lots of things on my to-do list. And I can just go down and be like, bam, 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 bam. And knock out like eight things at the same time. If I'm just doing like, well, doop doo I just check that little thingy off. And then go oh, back. Oh, man, I am so the It feels like a distraction. Like, I, I want to just, the minute everything's done, I'm just like, check it off. Anything I can get done and get out of the way now. So you probably have, like, 50 Asana tasks that appear to be overdue, but they've been done for, like, three years. And you just haven't gone in and done, like, your, you know, <laughs> <laughs> your annual checkoff ceremony where you just. <laughs> it, it might also be, like, a, a nice little deceptive strategy to cover me up, to cover me when I have two two things that I legitimately haven't done. I build up this reputation of like, it's just like, oh, I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's got them done. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant, dude. No, I really was amazed by that because you, you are using Asana, but not doing the checkoff. And that like doesn't even doesn't even compute in my brain. Sometimes I actually make I actually make additional lists just so that I have another thing. to. So I'll like have my list in Asana and then I'll make like a sticky note that says like check Asana uh, do emails. And then I get to cross them off physically on my little paper list just to like, give me another feeling of something that I did. Oh, um, dude, there's like a popular name for that. Now they, they call it the, uh, Seinfeld technique. You ever heard that? Uh, uh-uh. it, it just, I'm trying to remember from... the episode. Cause I've watched uh, pretty much every Seinfeld episode at least once. Oh yeah. Well, this was, uh, I guess he was just kind of telling the story about how he just kept the calendar and he had uh, something that he wanted to do, like basically write every day for him. And he would just put an X, a big red X on that day of the calendar when he finished his writing for the day. And he said there was something about having that long chain of red X's on his calendar. You just don't want to break that. You want to experience the pleasure of drawing that X and you don't want to experience the tension of, of 
breaking the chain. Yes. And um, and he says that was something that just drove him relentlessly to write. So that people call it the the uh, Seinfeld uh, technique. Don't yeah, break the chain. Before the days of smartphones, when my you know whether it's Asana or um, the uh, you know spreadsheets I use for my daily stuff, I, I just had this little pocket calendar I would carry around, and every day, I mean, just it was just everything was crossed off. And sometimes I would like just putting a line through. It wasn't enough. I would like cross the entire thing out. It just feels so good to see like done. All these are done. And yes, that unbroken chain. That's, that's absolutely huge for uh, obsessives like me. Um, okay. So I got a couple things uh, I want to talk about today. That was, that was a long uh, chit chat session for uh, listeners who find us boring <clears throat> when we talk about ourselves. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> For those of you who find TK boring uh, when he talks about himself, I'll, sorry, I'll try to talk about me a little bit more. Um, Blame it on the microphone. <laughs> that's racist. <laughs> <laughs> there uh, needs to be a laugh track too for whatever I know, we say. I, see, that. I've always want like it's too much work to figure it all out technically, but I would love to actually be able to do this live instead of record it and then post it right afterwards. And so, that, and we could have like little laugh tracks and stuff, maybe someday. Um, I saw an article. Somebody sent me a link uh, earlier this week. I was like, oh, hey, check this out. And it was, I don't even remember where it was published, but it was some guy, I think maybe even in the UK, saying, you know, my my degree was a complete ripoff. I had like no job and no prospects. And someone told me like, go get a degree that will change everything. So I went $30,000 in debt. I have a degree. And now I still have no job and no prospects. I'm just in debt. Um, what a joke. And all the comments we're like, well, the problem is that employers need to pay more. You know, employers don't pay enough for jobs. And so nobody can afford to live. And then people will tell you that you need to go get a degree in order to get paid more. So then you go into debt and go into all the school and then you still can't get paid enough. So companies aren't paying enough wages. And I thought, this is the weirdest thing ever. Like wh what other area of life do you see this? Where the employers are getting blamed. They just have a deal on the table. Here's what it takes to work here skill-wise. Here's what the pay is. You can take it or not take it. And if you're not qualified for it, try to figure out the qualifications. And and this blaming like you should just pay people more just sort of because whether they're creating value or not. And then oh, and it's unfair and we're we're told to go get degrees and then we get them and then now we have debt and we still can't get hired. And I'm thinking who's telling you to go get a degree. Do, do you apply to a job? Do you go to an employer and say, I want to work for you. What can I do? What would make me worthwhile to you? And they say, you know what? Just go, go get a degree and then you'll be worthwhile to me. Are they really saying that? Or are they saying you need the following skills and experiences and I need some way to prove your, your competency? Usually it's people within the education system or parents or just the common cultural narrative saying, go get a degree. That will help you be able to get a better job. And then you just do it and now you're blaming people for not paying you. And, and so what it got me thinking about was, I mean, first of all, why, why are you doing it anyway? Why are you going just because somebody told you to like, oh, they told me to do this and then it didn't work. Well, why did you do what they tell you? Why did you just assume that what people were telling you was going to work? Why don't you look into it for yourself? What will get me a, a better job, better pay? Um, but second, the dangerous part here is the idea that you are owed something. The idea that anyone owes you anything, a job, a certain level of pay, even respect, I think is so damaging and dangerous and really takes you backwards in your life and your personal growth. 
You know, man, this idea of you owe me something and the disempowering nature of that, I just want to say that I don't even think people believe that. I think they're kind of BSing themselves. Maybe we could say the fuller belief, the real belief is that you owe me something because I obeyed the rules. You owe me something because I did what I was told. There's a tendency to, you know, kind of feel more entitled when you follow the status quo, when you follow the mainstream path. And, and here's why I believe this. Because if you reverse the scenario and you take someone who didn't go to college and they told mom and dad, I'm going to strike it out on my own and try to be an entrepreneur or go to Broadway and try to be an actor or something like that. And that person struggled to get a job. No one would feel that kind of pity for them. No one would feel like the economy failed them. No one would feel like it's the president's fault or the world's fault. What would everyone say to that person? They would say, well, you should have gone to college because where, this – go ahead. Where do you think that comes from though? Like why, why would you assume that just following the rules uncritically, just doing what other people say – just because just because someone other than you had the idea, therefore it is supposed to work. And if it doesn't work, something's wrong with the world. Where does that mindset come from? That makes no sense. Just no critical examination. Just as long as someone else said it, then I do it. Then if I don't get a good result, it's unfair. Like, why? Why? Why is the words of others? Why are they just supposed to? Why are they assumed to be good for you? That's such a warped mindset. That's such a that's such a dangerous like prisoner's mindset. Like, as long as somebody else said it will be good for me, then it must be. And if it's not, the world's not fair. What? what like, do you have no self ownership? I mean, why that assumption? You know, I, I think part of it comes from uh, the fact that rules, for the most part, are rooted in accurate historical observations of cause and effect relationships. The reason we have rules is because once upon a time, we observed these cause and effect relationships that, allow, that allowed us to predict certain outcomes if certain action steps were taken. And, and so in order to, you know, our, our brain loves shortcuts, right? Uh, in, in order to not have to reason everything out all the time, we, we sort of use that, we sort of create a rule as a shortcut and we say, if this, then that. If you do this, you are more likely to succeed and get this kind of result. And a lot of these rules are just kind of rooted in rational thinking. But what happens is over time, the world changes, systems evolve, people evolve, and the rules of yesterday don't always apply to the world of today. And people forget the logic behind the rules and they mistake the symbol for the thing. They mistake the reality that is represented by the symbol for the symbol itself. And, and I think most forms of confusion in life come as a result of that. You know, um, you and I have talked about this with, with things like money before, with things like religion. I mean, you take like money, at, at least in a, a sort of like commodity-backed monetary system, money is really supposed to just be a symbolic representation of a person's capacity to create value. Uh, but what happens is over time, money becomes such a useful shorthand that we take that to be the thing. 
And people get to a point where if they don't have any money, they don't have any pieces of paper or coinage in their pockets, they say, well, I got no power to create. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're mistaking the symbol for the thing. The power to create is different from the symbol that represents it. You may not have the symbols that represent it, but you do have the potential to create. And if you cultivate that and translate that into solving problems for others, you will get the symbols. Most of our problems happen as a result of this way. I'm reminded even of the uh, the Bible story where there, I think it was in the book of Numbers where the people were plagued with this great illness and um, God instructed Moses to uh, erect a bronze serpent on the pole. And when people looked at the serpent, they would be healed of their diseases. And it worked. And, and it worked because this serpent on a pole was supposed to be like a symbol of wholeness. And it had this sort of like spiritual power. But then over time, people began to worship the serpent and they began to see the serpent as the source of their healing. And, you know, all sorts of problems began to result from that. And a later king had to take down the serpent and get rid of it because people were mistaking the symbol for the thing. We do it all the time. We mistake the Valentine's gift for love. We mistake the $50,000 wedding for the happy marriage. We mistake the gifts for the friendship. And I don't think the college degree is any exception. Once upon a time, having a college degree really did significantly raise the probability that you would get through a filtering system that was designed to weed out the people that didn't have certain attributes. But the world has changed. The world has evolved. We don't live in our grandmother's world anymore. And unfortunately, people forgetting the logic behind why things are this way are attaching themselves to the rule rather than the rationale. So I'm going to add two more potential reasons why there's this assumption that obeying authority or just following rules or taking other people's advice ought to lead to something good. And if it doesn't, you know, the world is flawed somehow. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there's, there's a rational component that there's sort of common sense, uh, and norms and, and traditions that form because people have sort of repeatedly experienced things and that wisdom gets embodied in things. So you, you sort of don't have to relearn from scratch every time. And I, I get that. I mean, there's no, I don't think you can go too far and be like, let's throw out everything, every tradition, every common sense idea needs to be thrown out and we need to like start from scratch. I think that is too arrogant about assuming you have the ability to sort of understand why these things came about. So you do need to get, you know, give them some, some credence, but I think the, this obedience to authority and following sort of common sense, the two causes that I, that I see that I dislike strongly and think are dangerous. One is this Hobbesian assumption that all of us have been raised with, certainly in, in all forms of formal education. I don't think it's a natural observation that anybody makes about the world. I think this is something that is taught to us and we're taught to see the world this way, which is nasty, brutish, and short, a war of all against all if we don't have this thing called authority, this magical thing that certain people, whether they're parents or teachers or governments or whatever, have this thing called authority, you must obey them and the moral thing to do is obey them because they know what's best for you and it's just better if we didn't obey them, even if it's to your own detriment in the short term, if you didn't obey them, we would live in a world where everyone was just murdering each other, where everyone just behaved completely contrary to how humans actually behave, self-interested humans. But this belief, this, you know, the, um, the, the, 
what do they call that uh, that movie where they have like a day where there's no law and everybody just starts murdering and stuff, you know, like that. The that, purge. The yeah. purge. Yeah, I think that is embedded, has been beat into people's head through the through the ridiculousness of the way social sciences are approached that like, look, just follow rules, even if you don't understand them, because if you stop following rules, what if everyone does pretty soon you'll be murdered in your sleep? So there's that, which I think is completely false and dangerously so, and actually evil in many cases. That's that's what leads people to following orders to do horrible, horrific things in the name of order. But um, the other thing is scientism, what Hayek called scientism, the sort of worship of the methods of the physical sciences and the elevation of things like statistics and mathematics to this level that makes really no sense when we're talking about individual human beings. So saying, um, you know, diversify your investment portfolio. Cause look, I can show you statistics that will show your performance over time. Boom, boom, boom. Right. This is what the aggregate numbers do, you know, Oh, get a degree because look, I can show you statistical correlation, uh, which most people subtly turn into causation in their mind between people with degree and people with degrees and people who make more money. And we worship data and numbers. I mean, if you put out an article out there that says, you know, uh, picking your nose is good for you. People will be like, okay, that's kind of curious. If you put one out that says studies show picking your nose reduces something by 63%, the word study and a percent attached to it. It's like, oh, oh my gosh, that must be true. Let's, you know what I mean? Like, like we have this oh, obsessive yeah. worship of numbers and data. And so I think the the crazy thing about it is right in front of our face, we know that when it comes to our own lives, nothing could be stupider than to think of ourselves as like the average of some aggregate. I mean, every highly successful investor is the one who doesn't do what the statistics would tell you to do who doesn't diversify, who does the exact things that statistically don't work most of the time, which is why to win big, you have to be different. This is why, you know, the, um, the entrepreneur who says, I'm going to start a business. The statistics would tell you starting a business, you have a somewhere between 70 and 90% chance that that business is going to fail, depending upon how you read the numbers. Statistically, that is a stupid thing to do. So every single highly successful person is stupid according to statistics, right? Which is why you shouldn't run your life by statistics because you're not comparing, you're not in a world where you get to just meld in as some aggregate and let, you know, you do all the things that statistically make sense and that's going to lead to fulfillment. No, fulfillment is being you and you have something unique and to succeed as you, you're going to succeed the most precisely in the areas where you diverge the most extremely from the statistical norm, from the average, from the aggregate, find those places and go after them. And this, this worship of science and statistics and turning everything into averages and looking for data to back it up, I think is a, another source of this rule following mentality that gets pissed off when you followed the rules your whole life and then you don't get what you expect to come to you at the end. Oh man, that's right on the money. All right, so let me add a psychological dimension to this rule following mentality. One observation I strongly believe in is this, is that sometimes it's scarier to be right all by yourself than it is to be wrong with everyone else. Terrifying. Terrifying. And, And I truly believe that Although failure is the thing most people talk about being afraid of, that's what we write all the self-help books about and so forth. I don't think most people are afraid of failure per se. I think they're what they're really afraid of is being alone, whether that comes with success 
or failure. So, for instance, if you go uh, to college and you follow that path and your life doesn't turn out the way you want, you know that you're going to have a lot of people who are just like you, a lot of people who feel sympathy for you, a lot of people who support you because they'll look at you as like, hey, you, you did what you were supposed to do. You can't control everything. Maybe you were just unlucky. Maybe reality wasn't kind to you. Maybe it was the president, the economy, or all of this crazy stuff going on. On the other hand, if you say something like, I'm going to go to Broadway and be an actor, it's not just that you might fail. It's not just that you have a high probability of failing, but you know that if you fail, you're going to have a lot of people tell you stuff like, I told you so. Or why did you do that? Oh, my gosh. Like, you already knew the probability was really low. Like, the amount of support you will receive is really low. So very quickly, th there's a true story. I'm going to fictionalize it a little bit. But I, I know a girl. Who... Names have been changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> That's racist. <laughs> so... <laughs> yes. yes. You got me with that one. Well played. All right. So th there's a girl who is an entrepreneur she knew by the time she graduated high school that that she wanted to start her own business and she knew what what field she wanted to go into. And she has three sisters, all of whom went to college. Uh, a couple of them are older. One of them is younger. And the three sisters have pretty much struggled in their careers for the most part. They haven't done anything that is impressive in terms of how much money they made or what kind of jobs they have. And I'm not saying that based on my standards. I'm saying that based on what they say about their own lives. The, the other sibling, the one that didn't go to college, is very successful um, by everyone in the family standards. This is the person that everyone goes to when they need money. And yet to this day, when the parents talk about the children to other people, their eyes light up with pride when they talk about, yeah, so my, my one daughter went to U of M and the other graduated from U of Iowa. Like they, they talk with so much pride about these girls who graduated from these, you know, good colleges. And then when they talk about the one who's an entrepreneur, even though this is the one they all go borrow money from when they need it, they start to kind of stutter a lot and, and, and they don't really know what to do. They kind of feel like they should explain the fact that this kid didn't go to college and they're a little bit ashamed of them. And you can see this sort of religious kind of mentality to, um, you know, to, to going to college versus not. And one of the things that, that this lady told me is that while she was in the process of carving out her path, whenever she had any difficulties, she, it, was, it was made very clear to her that she was not to ask for help, not to ask for money because she deviated from the approved path. So it's like, all right, fine. We can't control you. If you want to go out there and be an entrepreneur, then that's your life. But if you struggle, then don't ask us for anything. If you need money, don't ask us for anything. But the ones who went to college, they struggled much more. And if they needed money, they needed help. The parents would give them the money. The parents would visit them. The parents would feel sorry for them. They'd offer them the support. But for the one who didn't go the approved path, well, then uh, you're, you're on your own because you're yeah. doing something we don't approve of. That's what's scary. It's not that you might fail. It's that whether you fail or succeed, you're going to be alone. Yeah. The other path, you've got company. The failure is lonely and even the success is lonely. There's there's still that feeling of like, yeah, you know, so-and-so. She She's just not quite there, a little different, a little disappointment, a little, you know, just that loneliness, like you said. I mean, that's one of the things – 
I've always been sort of entrepreneurial and I've done a lot of projects and kind of been, you know, independent type of person in the different jobs I've had and things like that. But until I launched Praxis full bore and like we just dove into this baby and started building it and this became, you know, my, my, my sole focus, I didn't understand the loneliness of entrepreneurship. I mean, it really is. It's just, it's just so different because it's, because it's, relatively rare and most people just don't they don't think of your like they, they all have struggles that are relatable with each other because they're all common and like doing something uncommon is the loneliest thing I think you can do in any field and I think that's really hard for people I, I wrote a post once many many years ago before I even launched practice called uh most people go to college to feel normal. And even though I'm huge on the signaling theory of higher education, which I still believe is absolutely what the product people are buying and selling is the signal, nothing else, not the knowledge, not the social experience, none of that stuff. Professors don't understand that. Consumers of the good don't understand that, but that's what's going on because everything else can be had for free. I still fully believe that, but I think on an emotional level, the reason that they're buying that signal is because everyone else buys that signal. Not because they've weighed the cost and benefits, not because all these other things, which I still think, you know, would, would be an improvement and college wouldn't come out looking too great in most cases, but I just want to feel normal. I mean, cause I've talked with people who 100% get it. I get it. It's a signal. I get that I can build a more valuable signal. I get that the opportunity cost is huge. I, I actually know what I could do instead and it would be better and I would enjoy it more and it would lead me to more of what I want faster but I'm still going to go to college because it's normal. And I just don't know if I can handle being so different from everyone. And that's a really powerful draw. Maybe you, maybe you would call it mimetic desire. Uh, if you want to channel Rene Girard, um, this desire to, we, we mimic the desires of others, not just we want what they have, but whatever they desire, we just desire it as well. Uh, somebody starts wanting it. You see this in kids and then you, you feel like you have to want it. So you mimic it. And I think breaking free from that is absolutely humongous. Um, I'm sure you experienced this, Isaac, when you, when you travel the country speaking, um, we both like to do Q and a, and it happens without fail. Whenever I do Q and a, um, it takes a good minute before anyone raises their hand. And then once that first person raises the hand, it's like everybody starts raising their hand and there isn't enough time for questions. Or <laughs> I, I've had Q&A sessions where no one raised their hand. And um, I was like, all right. So I wrapped on up. And then after that, everybody's running to me with questions. Yes. And the, the, the questions aren't even personal. They're not like, hey, I got this deep, dark secret. They're exactly I on what you were just talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just had this. I was at College of the Bahamas uh, for the Foundation for Economic Education. And there was this one-day seminar on entrepreneurship. And it was phenomenal. I mean, there's a, a tremendous a bunch of young people there at College of the Bahamas, really engaged, really interested. And as I'm giving a lecture, they're all they're following, they're shaking their heads, they're giving me that feedback that you love to get as a speaker. And I'm like, they're into this, man. It's it's moving. They give me a rousing clap, you know, when I'm done, and everybody's like, yeah, they're hyped up. And I'm like, okay, questions, crickets. And it was like a long, a long period of time with no questions. And I maybe got one or two. So I'm like, that's weird. Soon as the talk's done, I'm flooded. I was trapped up at the front of the room for like. 45 minutes, the people I was with were like, we got to get going to dinner. And people are trying to take pictures with me. They're asking me all these questions. They're asking, and I'm just like, why, where, where was this? You know, where was this before? 
Yeah, and the and the questions are stuff like Isaac, what's the most important book that's changed your life? It's like, dude, that's not even personal. You yes. could have did that in the time yes. I allotted. it. But it's the fear of being alone is so strong. It's like, well, no one else is asking questions, and 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 if I do it, I'm gonna be by myself. You know, so so I'd rather not get my answer and fit in. That's a pretty strong desire. It 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 governs so many aspects of our yeah. decision making process. Man, be weird. Just freaking be weird. Be yourself. Like your desires are different from other people's desires, and it's hard to figure that out because you feel like you're supposed to desire what everyone else does. Um, and there may be a lot of similarity. Like, don't be afraid of that either. If you do happen to desire what a lot of people do, don't be ashamed that you like things that are popular and you know go out of your way to pretend to be unique. But like, just find you. Man, that's hard, but that's powerful. So, so in line with this, that the other where I started with this was the idea that someone owes you something, and I think I'm willing to go really far with this idea that it's really dangerous to ever believe anyone owes you something. And I, and I posted something like that on Facebook, and and somebody posted, um, yeah, but what about like rights? Certainly, you believe that rights are important, and that you should feel like you are owed. Uh, you know, your freedom and your peace and your security that, that, you know, someone violates your rights, you should feel like that's wrong. And, and I, <laughs> I actually, I'm actually willing to go really far here. So first of all, when it comes to rights, the idea of positive rights is absolutely asinine, childish, dangerous, and logically incoherent. The idea that anyone owes you something that you have a right to something, to a certain level of income, to Wi-Fi, to healthcare, to, you have no right to anything. That's, that's positive rights. The reason they're asinine and logically impossible is because if you have a positive right, then negative rights cannot exist. In fact, positive rights can't even coexist with other positive rights. So if you have an expertise in uh, chiropractic skills, TK, and I feel like I am owed healthcare and I have a back problem, then I feel like you, that, that I have a right to a certain level of health and you are the one who knows how to provide it. That means that you don't have a right to your own time and your own choice of who you associate with. Because if I have a right to your services, you no longer have a right to choose who you provide them to at what time, at what cost. Now you owe it to me. You don't have a right. What if you think you have a right to health as well? We both have this positive right to health and you providing me services is going to make you too tired. We can, those are not compatible. So positive rights are stupid. Asking, there's no place for them. I don't care what anyone says. They try to make these arguments. Oh, it's more nuanced than that. No, it's not. They're, they're logically ridiculous. Negative rights, though, which I think are a great concept that emerge in the common law tradition in our society as a um, whether or not they sort of exist out there as this moral like pre-existing thing that we have a right to life, liberty and happiness and it's immoral to violate that. Whether or not that's true, they emerge practically that as long as you don't violate my negative right to basically be left alone, um, that's a good thing. We can do anything that's voluntary. I'm a, I'm a huge fan in that concept. But even there, the mindset that you are owed the negative right, I think can even be detrimental. So if I, if I choose to view it as, um, you know, you are blasting loud music at night and you are violating my, you know, whatever right uh, to, let's say, my property or, or let's go even more tangible. Let's say you, you, you know, throw a rock through my window. You have actually aggressed against me. So you have violated my negative right to just have my own property left alone and be peaceful. Now, if I say you owe it to me to leave me alone, I don't know what that mindset is going to do to help me at all versus saying nobody owes me anything. They don't even owe me peace and quiet. They don't even owe me my life, liberty and happiness. Everyone is just a self-interested actor, whether I like it or not, whether that's moral or not. 
They're all self-interested. So I need to understand that and create an institutional setting for myself in which it's not in anyone's self-interest to do things I don't like, to violate what I feel are my rights. They don't owe it to me. It's up to me to create the incentive for them to not want to break my window. Not Again, not in the moral sense. You could say, well, that's not fair. You, you shouldn't have to. It's not about have to. It's about the way the world is. In most instances, you don't have to do anything because most people don't want to break your window. But you may be in settings where people want to violate your rights. And if you acknowledge that just saying, they owe it to me, that's not fair. They owe it to me to not slash my tires. Who cares if they owe it to you or not? That's all philosophy. If you actually want a better life, thinking that way will only make you pissed off and it won't get you anywhere. Just saying, nobody owes me anything. They don't even owe me my own peace of mind. They don't owe me my own you know, right to my property. They all are going to pursue their self-interest. What can I do to make sure that it doesn't harm me? So I'm willing to go all the way with saying the idea that anyone owes you anything, even just your peace and negative rights, is going to curb you from achieving what you want to more than if you just get rid of that concept altogether. Would you be willing to go with me on that? Yeah, man. I, I think it would be just better to say, instead of saying, Isaac, you owe me X, to say things like, I have a rational basis for expecting X, or I have the right to defend myself thusly when X is violated, right? I mean, because- Or even because just remove the rights altogether. Say, I have a desire for X, and if someone attempts to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna create a situation where it is costly to people to violate it, and if they do violate that desire that I have, I am going to act thusly in order to mitigate it. And even just remove the rights thing altogether. Again, not that I don't think rights exist or, or that they matter, but thinking that way, just just constantly reminding yourself how you've been violated doesn't really help you make progress. Right, right, right. So, so I'm thinking in terms of having a rational basis for expecting things and having a rational basis for acting in certain ways, right? So I got a rational basis for acting in this way. I got a rational basis for responding to the experiences in my way and then using that as a foundation for action. I I'm with you here. I, I think the problem that you're pointing out is that this mentality of, you owe me this leads to what I like to call the I shouldn't have to fallacy. It's not that people are wrong when they say this sort of stuff, you know, because in, in many cases, people are right. Like, I shouldn't have to do certain things. <laughs> I, I, you know, like I, I, I shouldn't have to tell you to not touch my stuff. You know what I mean? I shouldn't have to tell people to keep your hands off my body. I shouldn't have to tell you to have some decency and some respect. I, you know, According to my ideals, according to my philosophy, there ought to be certain things that people should just know and people should do without being told. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. In an effort to create the results that matter most to me, I can't pretend that I live in the world that we should live in. I got to start with the world that we actually live in, and I have to make creative and intelligent decisions about that world. So although I shouldn't have to tell you not to interrupt me when I'm talking, I might need to <laughs> do it in order to get what I want. <laughs> right? You like that example? I shouldn't have to tell you that passive aggression while we're on the air in the podcast <laughs> is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, uh, I think another thing too is a lot of people kind of fail to make the distinction between um, being right and getting what they want. 
Um, and, and sometimes the question isn't, hey, can you win this argument if you were willing to debate till everyone lost their breath? The question is, what adjustments do you need to make in your lifestyle in order to create the results that matter most to you? You and I have talked about this a lot in an earlier episode when we discussed uh, – the, the uh, sports and the life lessons we can learn from sports. And, and we talked about how the great athletes tend to have this mentality that says it's on me. It's on me. So you can have a team loses a game because, you know, let, let's say the Warriors lose a game because Clay Thompson misses a free throw. Steph Curry's the kind of guy that's going to say it's on me. We lost because of me. Now, technically, that's not true. You lost because your teammate missed the free throw. So if you're just focused on being technically correct, that's what you would say. But what great leaders realize is that the only way to get better, the only way to approach a situation with an empowered frame of mind is to say, there's something I could do about this or there's something I could have done to turn it around. Not in a spirit of blame, but in a spirit of responsibility. I quoted him before, I'll quote him again. As my boy Wayne Dyer said, responsibility does not equal blame. It means the power to respond with ability. So don't blame anyone else. Don't blame yourself. Don't blame anybody. Just focus on what you can do to get what you want. At the end of the day, that's all that matters, not how right you are. You know, I want to live in a world where everyone respects my negative rights. And I think that's a valuable concept. And I think it's valuable to remind. And, and for the most part, um, you know, besides governments, most individuals are not violating my negative rights. So, so it's, it's pretty common, but I, I want that. But I also don't want the fact that sometimes people, the world isn't like that. The fact that sometimes my rights are violated to make me completely unfree and unhappy I want to be able to survive in a world that's not exactly like I want it to be. I'm reminded of, and I think sometimes all this focus on rights, just rights alone, like, oh, well, this, this is, I have a right to this and whatever can, like you said, you can, you can focus on being right, uh, about whether things are fair or just instead of getting what you want. And I'm reminded of the great divorce, one of my all time favorite books, it's this sort of journey from hell to heaven with all these characters and they're, they're kind of you know, introduced to heaven and they all respond in very different ways. Most of them actually don't want heaven. Uh, they don't recognize it as such uh, at first. And there's all these interesting conversations, but there's one character, sort of a minor character, and the whole time they're on this bus up to heaven and he's like, you know, oh, that was my seat in the bus. You know, that was my, I just want my rights. I'm not asking for anything special. I just want my rights. Don't take my seat. You know, they get off the bus and some angel is like, welcome, you know, wander, grab the fruit from the trees, come with me. And he's like, I don't have to, I have my rights. I don't have to go with you. And you know, the angel's like, no, you don't, you know, like, well, I can do exactly this. I'm only asking for my rights. And he's like, got this, like, look, I'm not going to violate anyone else's rights, but all I want is my rights. And, and, and it's like, yeah, that's, that's fine. You can have your rights, but you can, you can maintain your rights while not getting anything wonderful or joyful or fulfilling uh, pretty easily. So if all you want is your rights to not be violated, uh, that's fine. But that's kind of like a small thing to ask. So here you are sitting in the corner. You're correct. You don't have to follow this angel through heaven. You have the right to stay behind. Great. Are you happy? Are you exploring? I know, anything I know, new? Yeah. Are you pushing your boundaries? Um, so those things are not, you know, incompatible. 
Um, I mean, think about every argument or conflict you found yourself in. Do you not always have the right to say, screw it, I'm just going to walk away and not work this problem out? You always have that right. But a right isn't necessarily a basis for inaction or opting out. Sometimes a right is the foundation for, uh, for responding to a situation from a place of power. Like, yeah, I got the right to not sit here and work out this conflict with you. And that's what's going to make my effort to work it out all the more valuable and meaningful. And, and I don't want to downplay the fact that acknowledging your rights or what you are free to choose can be empowering. In fact, I want to elevate that. So I'm not saying that the recognition, hey, I don't have to do that. I have the right to do whatever. I don't need to do what you say. I don't mean, I am free to do it. Like that's empowering. I would say it's so powerful that that should just be a given at all times. So when someone confronts you with something, rather than your immediate response being like reassuring yourself, I have the right not to, I don't have to, like that's understood. Instead, just see it as an interesting opportunity to choose whatever you want to choose. And 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 don't just like retreat back to, you know, I mean, my, my son does this sometimes. I'll be like, hey, do you want to help me with this? And he just is immediately like, like, Got to stake a claim for his own autonomy. No, I don't have to. I don't have to. I did my chores for the day already. I don't have to. I'm like, I know (laughs) that's not what's at stake here. You know, like that's a given. You don't need to have so much fear over that. Like understand that that's a given. You can just make a decision. No, no, thanks. Or yeah, that sounds cool. Or, you know, uh, well, what is it? Tell me a little bit more, you know, but like to just immediately like fearfully, I don't have to, I don't have to, (laughs) you know, it's like you're sort of missing some of the richness and the opportunity in life. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so here's a here's a somewhat related. So I was talking with this uh, young person recently, and he was saying, you know, he was he was interested in praxis potentially. And I said, well, what are you doing right now? And he said, you know, I'm, I'm graduating high school. I absolutely hate the classroom. I've got I've done all these different. I've started different little businesses. I'm very entrepreneurial. I'm really smart, but school is very boring to me. Um, I have no interest in just sitting in classrooms, going to college. Like your program sounds fascinating. I want to learn. I like startups. Blah blah blah. And I said, so he said, so I might do this in like a year. And I said, so what's your plan right now for the, for the current time? He said, community college. And I said, why? And he said, because it's cheap and I don't want to go into debt. Now think about that for a minute. Think about that. This is someone who just told me he knows college isn't going to get him where he wants. He hates the classroom experience and he wants to do something different. And then when I said, then why are you doing community college? His answer wasn't, well, because even though there's all these things I hate about it, I think that it will be better than whatever alternative I have to do it for one year or two years or whatever. His answer was nothing about, I said, what, I said, what was, what's the value of that to you? And he did not answer what the value was. He said, it's cheap, uh, compared to what, right? Compared to other colleges, but it's cheap and it, it won't make me go into debt. Now think about how absurd that is. The assumptions underneath there, that would be like you saying to me, Isaac, I hate pizza it makes me sick. I have an allergic reaction to it. It creates no value for my life. It actually puts me backwards from where I want to be health wise and, and enjoyment wise. And then I would say, well, why did you order uh, little Caesars for, for dinner? And you'd be like, cause it was cheaper than Papa John's, you know, like <laughs> that's, that's the absurdity. Like yeah. I hate it. It's not creating value for me, but compared to other things, it costs less. I mean, that's like when my wife will say, you know, Oh, I, I bought all this, these clothes at the store. I'm like, well, I didn't really need, you know, additional clothes. Oh, but they were, I saved a bunch of money. 
they were 20 bucks and normally they're 60. And I'm like, that's, but that's not called saving money. If I didn't need a shirt and you spend $20 on a shirt, you didn't save any money. You spent money. She's like, well, oh, well compared to what the price used to be, I saved money. No, that's not called saving. Right. So this idea, <laughs> it's just so strong. Like he had no basis for community college being valuable, but like saving money compared to other forms of college was just supposed to be of value in and of itself. I hear other people say, oh, well, I hate college. It's not doing anything for me, but you know, my, my dad's a professor, so it's free. So I basically have to, to take advantage of it. And I said, what do you mean take advantage of it? Take advantage means that you're actually getting an advantage. You just told me it's not going to give you an advantage. So what if the dollar price is zero? That doesn't make it a good deal for you. <laughs> you know, it's just a Absolutely. weird, it's just a weird concept I run into. I don't know if, if you had any additional thoughts on that. Oh yeah. So this actually loops back to, um, the earlier things we said about apprenticeship. So in this um, Robert Greene book I referred to, he he actually identifies these three steps in apprenticeships. He uh, number one is deep observation, number two is skills acquisition, and number three is experimentation. Very quickly, deep observation is when you have the opportunity to observe an expert do what they do up close. They're not just telling you about it. You're not just reading about reading about it. You're watching them do what they do within the context where the risks are real. Skills acquisition is when you get involved in that process as well. You're not just shadowing experts, but you're taking risk. You're getting hands-on learning. The third process is critical, and it's experimentation. It's the opportunity to take creative risk for the purpose of self-exploration. Now, I want to emphasize that third thing, experimentation, because when you bring up a guy like this, I'm not mad at that guy. I'm mad at the world. I'm mad at society. I'm mad at the authoritarianism that drives this world. I'm mad at the fact that this guy has no outlet for that third critical element of apprenticeships, which is experimentation. He has no way to explore who he is and what he wants out of life without paying extremely high prices because he's de-incentivized. I mean, basically, the, the, the reason I get and empathize with the choice to go to community college without getting into debt is because he's not going to have to take any social risk. He knows that whatever he does for the next year, he's going to get a lot of questions from people, from a lot of adults who have the ability to make him feel very bad about himself. And they're going to say, what are you doing? And, he, and, and if he says, oh, I'm, I'm at, you know, St. Joe's or Triton, you know, community college, people will leave him alone. <laughs> I think you every know? city has a Triton or some such. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, a Triton or a St. Joseph's, right? <laughs> like, he knows people will leave him alone. They'll, they'll be like, okay, that's cool. Like, it may not be as good as going to a university. In fact, some people will see him as smarter than all the other kids because he's taking the inexpensive route to preparing for university life. So he's bought himself at least a year where nobody's going to really say anything to make him feel bad about himself or make him feel weird or have a bunch of crazy follow-up questions. And I think in many ways, society has failed him because that comes from a kind of indoctrination that he's been fed for so many years. Now, at the end of the day, he's going to have to make his choices and take responsibilities for his life, regardless of the kind of society that we live in. But I'm much more mad at the system of indoctrination that has resulted in people needing an opportunity to figure out what they want for themselves after spending so many time so many years in school where what they want for themselves is unimportant it's it's no 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 you got you got to follow this map that we've laid out for you or you're going to end up being a homeless loser <laughs> you know so by the time they get to a point where they start thinking about their interests they have no vocabulary for how to do it well you know, you know? And I I never push people like that in any way I'm never like no no you know you need to just stop you know because 
for one, it's it, like you said, it's got to be them. It's got to be their choice. It's got to be their decision. I don't know what's right for him. I know based on what he's telling me that that seems like an odd combination, but I can only guess. And so I never push. And what is interesting to me, what, what I love about not pushing is that, that we see this all the time. The really good ones, the ones who mean those words that they say, like, this is boring to me. I know I'm, I'm, I can do more than the classroom. I'm better than this. My time's for whom that's actually true, which is most of them, if you have the awareness to say that. And yet they still say, I'm going to go put myself in a classroom again and shackle myself to it. If you just say like, Hey man, you know, that's, that's great. Do, do what you need to do. They go and, and it, they, they can't make that break from all that pressure you talked about instantly going into that classroom for a semester or two, or sometimes it takes two years. They're like, okay, I really tried because I assumed everybody must know something that I don't. And now that I've tasted it myself, it's not only what I thought, it's worse. <laughs> like the number of people who have come to us and said, I'm really interested in Praxis, but I just think I need to go to college. And then about a year later, they come back and they say, oh man, college was worse than I thought. <laughs> like now they've gained the courage because they've finally been able to see with their own eyes. It wasn't just a hunch they had. It wasn't just a feeling that maybe everybody around me doesn't quite understand me and maybe I can do something different. Now they actually saw it for themselves. And that gets me excited because I always love like, he's going to find his way. He's going to find his way. Um, whatever that way is, uh, TK, there was something in the Praxis, um, participant and alumni Facebook group recently that I found interesting. Someone asked, how do you balance sort of your, your job? And in this case with the Praxis participants, your apprenticeship, and then like side projects or moonlighting or doing freelance work for, you know, some other, some clients or whatever else. And, I thought that was really interesting. The, the discussion that ensued was beautiful because it really tapped into something that I know you and I are both huge on. And that's a huge part of the praxis mindset, which is, I think that whole dichotomy, this is just semantics, but semantics are important. We've talked about language and mindsets a lot. That whole dichotomy of like, this is my main gig. How do I spend time on my side things without taking away from it? How do I divide? You know, I'm a freelancer, but I also have a full time. All of those labels and titles, I think are a little bit distracting. Like no matter what, no matter where your paycheck comes from, you work for you, period. You are the CEO of me incorporated if you want to be cheesy and always having that mindset. Like I'm not in this job and then this job and then free. I just do. I create value for people and these are some people I create value for and I get paid this under this arrangement and also these people and these people and just thinking of yourself as a firm, I think is so huge to kind of help you overcome some of those struggles about should I freelance? Should I this? Should I that? Just think of yourself as a firm and at any given time, you could be working different places as a contractor or as a full-time salaried employee or as both or what, but you are your own firm. I think that really matters to, to, to have that slight mindset shift. Oh, absolutely. And, and another metaphor I like to use is your, the, your life as art metaphor, you know, um, look at your life as a work of art. It's a, a work that's always in progress. You're always involved in the creative process. And it's really just about you creating the quality of life that you want to have. You're, you're not just what you do for a paycheck. Your, your life involves the friendships you have, it involves, you know, um, your hobbies, it involves all sorts of things. And, you know, everything should feed into the other. So if, if you're working at a job that seems to have nothing to do with 
the things that make you laugh, that's okay. You're working at that job for a reason because that job is somehow in some way feeding into your broader art project, which is your life. That job is either giving you money, connections, experiences that you can use towards everything. And when you start to look at stuff like that, when you focus more on your overarching why and you look at everything in your life that's feeding into your why, um, you stop looking at different things as getting in the way. And, and in fact, I mean, I'm, I'm at an age where um, a, a substantial percentage of my friends are married and both male and female, there can sometimes be a tendency for people to look at family life, like my kids are getting in the way of my dreams, my spouse getting in the way of my dreams. That could be a very easy trap to fall into in the adult world. And, and, some, and something that we have to constantly be vigilant about reminding ourselves of is, wait a minute, wait a minute, they are part of the dream. They, they might get in the way of me trying to practice the piano in quiet right now, absolutely, but 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 they are the they are a part of this broader empire that I am building, this broader work of art that I am creating. And reminding yourself of that can not only ease the frustration, but it can help you embrace the diversity which is your life and help you frame it in a way um, that is just so much more empowering. You know, hey, I'm gonna start using that. Hey, you're all part of my dream. When I'm like, you know, somebody's annoying me and I'm waiting and they're taking forever to you know make my sandwich at Jimmy John's, I'm just gonna be like, hey. <laughs> You're just part of my dream, you know, this is no sweat, part of my empire. Um, <laughs> hey, so you told me something, this is a totally different topic. Um, if you got a few more minutes, I have this in one other topic. Um, you, you mentioned something to me the other day that I thought was a great example of how not to use social, social capital. <laughs> uh, it was about your friend who is having maybe like a medical issue or something, an old friend, and there was a Facebook group and somebody, somebody asked everybody to contribute to like a, a video project. Can you, can you retell the story? Yeah. So it, it was basically, uh, someone reaching out saying, Hey, let's, let's do this nice thing where, uh, you know, we, we basically like each create a short video sending some kind of word of encouragement out, you know, and, um, and, 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 and basically I'll do all the editing you know, just get it to me in whatever way you can. I don't care about the quality or the app or the program you use. Just do it in whatever way is convenient for you. Get it to me in whatever way is convenient for you. And I'll take the time to put it all together and make it real nice. And then, and, yeah. and then what happened? What were the, what were the comments? <laughs> so what happened was like some of the common responses were like, hey, I don't know how to uh, upload a video. What what software should I use? Or, hey, what, what should I use to record this? Or... I don't know how to use YouTube. I don't know how to use Dropbox. And, and, uh, and it, it was just funny because it was one of those moments where, number one, it, it made me realize just how valuable it is to find out how to do that stuff by just doing it. We're, we're, we're constantly working with people who ask questions like, hey, what are the most valuable skills to learn? And they want us to say something like, learn how to upload a video on YouTube or learn how to use audacity editing software, because then everyone will want to hire you and you will make X amount of dollars per year. But it's like, you know what? The most Google. valuable skill to Google. learn. Google.com. <laughs> yes. Google.com. Learn how to use Google. Learn how to, how to write the following sentence. Like, how do I do X? Learn how to find a two minute tutorial that can show you how to do anything. Learn how to read one of those um, e-how-to articles. 
Well, what what I thought was so funny about this is because on the one hand, people go, like, well, what's so wrong about being like, oh, I need a little help with this, whatever. Again, we're not talking about wrong and right, but think about this. This guy says, hey, we all care about this friend. Let's do this. He comes up with the idea. Send me a video. He's doing a ton of work. I'm willing to take it all, edit it, whatever. So he's he's clearly putting himself out there and making it easier for everyone else, which is a great gesture. He's creating some social capital. You're like, wow, that's really nice. I just send you a video and whatever. And so if you want to be a part of that, to turn around and immediately say, to, to turn around and say, hey, how do I do it? To me says, hey, thanks for doing everything. Now, why don't you do more? I want you to do the tiny bit that I'm supposed to do. You do that as well. You know, can you do even more? Let me just, let me just raise the cost to you over and over, just raise the cost higher and higher of you doing this nice thing that's already costing you a lot more in time and resources than it is me. That just seems so backwards, such bad judgment to me. And again, I'm not trying to pick on these people because like that's something maybe my mom would post or something like, hey, how do I do it? Just to me, if you don't know how, and even if you don't feel you have the confidence to Google it and watch a two minute tutorial on it or whatever, there's got to be someone else in your life other than the guy that just said, I'm going to expend a ton of time and energy. All I need you is to come just a little bit my way by sending me a video. Don't go back to him and be like, no, no, I'm not going to come a little bit. You need to give me step by step. Come further my way. You're already expending a ton. Come even further because I am I really don't want to get off the couch. There's got to be someone else in your life you can go to directly and be like, hey, I have this project for my friend. Can you help me upload a video real quick? So that you don't have to bring it there and like weigh it on this guy. This basically raises the cost to him of doing anything like this. Just if you're the kind of person that says, yep, I'll have it to you by Tuesday, even though you don't know how to do it yet and you'll just take it offline and find out how to do it on your own, that act is so much more valuable. You don't have to cash in all this social capital by turning right around and asking for instructions immediately. I mean, we get this in our application process, you know, submit uh, X, Y, and Z. And immediately it's like, uh, how do I do X, Y, and Z? And it's like, okay, I mean, that's fine. We want to answer questions, but you can just Google that. And the, the more you can demonstrate that you just know how to deliver it, even if you didn't know how ahead of time, that is a hugely valuable skill. It's huge. And I think people just under undervalue that. And I think they overvalue because of the classroom setting. They overvalue asking questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. If you don't understand, ask for help. No, there's a much, there's a ton of value to just, if you don't know how to do something saying, you know how, and then going and figuring it out on your own, you know? Oh man. And, and people miss out on a lot of practical, valuable life lessons like this because they get caught up in either the right and wrong debate or the can I get away with this kind of behavior with this particular friend debate or the hey, don't be mean. Uh, you know, so-and-so had a perfectly reasonable psychological explanation for why they thought it was fine to do that. It's like, okay, toss all that out of the window because there are choices you can make that you can totally get away with with certain friends and in certain contexts and so forth. But as an overall way of living, it might be less than optimal. And it's good to know this. So so one example I can give you, something that happens a lot is, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll tell someone in a conversation, all right, I'll send you an email by the close of business today. Or I say to someone, um, I'll send you an email. It'll be in your inbox by tomorrow morning. And then I'll send that email. And then I'll hear back from that person in like eight days and they'll, and they'll say, Hey, you said you were going to send me an email <laughs> a week, a week ago. Uh, I never got it. And then I say, okay, so let's start here. Check your spam right quick. 
And then they check their spam and, and they're like, oh, I got it. And th this is such a hard thing to convey and I can't always convey it because some people just can't take it. But I usually follow up with, all right, look, check it out, man. I'm totally not angry. I'm totally not irritated, but I have to tell you this because I truly believe it'll help you out. With me, you're totally okay. You can do this all the time because I just don't care. I'm too nice. But if someone tells you they're going to send you an email by close of business today, then you might want to check your inbox tomorrow to see if it's there. And if it's not there, you might want to say something then. Or check Maybe. your spam yourself first. Right, right, right. But if you're expecting an email, you don't want to wait like 10 days to be like, hey, I never got that email. You know, because it, 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 it misrepresents you as someone that is just checking now or as someone that noticed in but, you know, was, was too passive or lazy to follow up on it. And again, it's not about being able to understand why a person would find it reasonable to do this because I have been that person enough times to be highly sympathetic. I, I don't get annoyed with people for stuff like this, but it's so useful to know that in the larger world, when you're not dealing with your best friend in the world or with your mom who just loves you unconditionally, that, that these are the kinds of details that make a huge difference in being able to get the job, get the opportunity, build social capital. Most opportunities are made or broken with little details like that. That's racist. <laughs> um, Touche. You know that I like wasn't listening to the whole last three minutes of your soliloquy because I just couldn't wait to say that. <laughs> like, uh -huh, uh huh, something about social capital. Hurry up, hurry up. Um, <laughs> hey, so one last thing. You got you got a little bit more time? Yeah, man, let's kick it. So I've been thinking about this a lot lately. The I gave this talk in College of the Bahamas where I sort of talked about entrepreneurship as narrative, vision, and imagination. And narrative is the stories we tell about the past. Uh, vision is the way we see the present. And imagination is what we imagine for the future. And so you need those three things. And they map onto Mises's three preconditions for human action. Discontentment, which is sort of what I see the story we tell about the past. To be an entrepreneur, first you have to have a story about the past that says, I'm not happy with the way things have always been done. This is not just the way things are, you know, oh, humans can't, you know, f heavier than air flight is not possible. That's the story that everyone had told. And the Wright brother said, no, I'm not satisfied. I'm discontent with that. So that's the narrative. They're, they're not willing to accept the dominant narrative about the past and the way things have been. And then the present, the, the, a vision of something better, as Mises would say, you have discontentment, a vision of something better. And that's that vision to look around at the present and say, wait a minute, something is possible right now today. Something already exists that nobody else sees. And then imagination it maps onto Mises's uh, a belief in the ability to get there, to get to that something better. And imagination is I can take what's available in the present that no one else notices and I can use it. I can imagine it solving this problem that everyone else has said is just an unsolvable problem the way that the world works. So anyway, I've been thinking a lot about this since I put that talk together. And I've been thinking specifically about the present, the vision to see what exists right now. Many people confuse the future for the present. They think things like, you know, uh, the growing demand for entrepreneurship is coming or um, things like Praxis, apprenticeships, uh, build your own signal 
instead of higher education. It's coming. It's down the road. We're not there yet, but I could see things getting there. And they think they're sort of like prescient in imagining. And I think the really bright people are the ones, because I think almost all the time, our paradigms are about 20 years behind. We, we, even if we're onto something, oh, I can see this being a big thing. Usually it already is. And I've been thinking about this in, in, as I was thinking about it, this wonderful scene from the movie, other people's money, which I highly recommend. It's a great movie with Danny DeVito. It's like from the maybe late eighties phenomenal scene. He's, he's Larry, the liquidator Any movie with DeVito is great. Oh, it is. He, he's Larry, yeah. the liquidator who buys, you know, buys up companies for their assets and then, you know, breaks them up and sells them for the, for the value of the assets. And so he buys this wire and cable company that's been around for forever, a good, strong, profitable company. And he's buying it up and he's at the shareholder meeting and the shareholders have to vote whether or not they want to liquidate the company, which is what he wants to do. And this, the, the founder gives this impassioned speech about this is people's livelihoods and we have pride in this company and we shouldn't liquidate it. We're a profitable company and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh man, the shareholders are going to go with him. And Larry, the liquidator gets up, you know, this bad, nasty guy who just wants to make a buck. And he's like, he's like, amen, amen. Because what I just heard was a prayer that's called the prayer for the dead. He said, this company is dead. I didn't kill it. It was dead when I got here. It's dead. You just don't know it yet. It's dead because of obsolescence, because fiber optics have been invented. And the only dignified thing to do is to sell it now while it's valuable and profitable and get out because it's not that it's going to die. It's already dead. You just don't know it yet. And that really, really stuck with me because I was having a conversation with someone about you know, college and credentials and hiring processes. And they were like, oh, I love what you guys are doing. Skipping all this inefficient stuff where you just assume that a degree is going to tell you whether someone's worth hiring. All these businesses are already finding this inefficient. And like, she's like, yeah, I could see 10 years down the road, you know, this being something where people are, are using something like your experience, whatever more. And, um, you know, I can see it, it eroding the university system. And, and I told her, cause I, I believe this, the university, the college degree as a method of getting a job, getting the next step, it's already dead. It's not going to die. It's already dead, but nobody sees it yet. That's the time where you have opportunity. That's the time when the people who have that vision of the present, they see what's already happened. And my analogy is the newspaper industry. You know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, when the internet blogging and all this, you know, citizen journalism, whatever started to emerge. Most people would say, this is, oh, this is going to change the newspaper industry. What's going to happen? And some radicals would say, it's going to kill the newspaper industry. And some, no, 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 no. The minute those blogs came out, the newspaper industry was already dead as it, as it existed. All those local hometown rags, all those things that it took 10 or 15 years for it to play out, but it was already dead. It's like someone in hospice. It's a foregone conclusion. It's already dead. And I think that's the case. The people who really have the vision to see what's going on in the present, they see what others think is coming in the future. And they think that they're sort of like savvy for predicting. It's not a prediction. It's already here. The minute fiber optics was invented, that company died. It took 20 years before it became, uh, it lost all of its value, but it was dead the minute fiber optics were invented. And I think that excites me. I think there's so much in the present. I think our paradigms are so easily stuck 20 years behind. We're, we're still thinking in terms of the technologies and opportunities that existed 20 years ago. And we're trying to imagine what could happen to them instead of recognizing, you know, some tiny thing that's a blip on the radar. It's, it's 
already happened. It's already here. The, the university system is already extinct. It's already a dinosaur. Um, it's just a matter of time before it plays itself out. And, and that's, you know, sort of my particular industry that I'm passionate about. But um, I love that speech and I love sort of thinking in that way that what most people call the future is actually the present, which hasn't fully manifested yet. What do you think about that concept? Well, the, the first image that comes to my mind is the very first scene from the Matrix film where you see the character Trinity alone in that room and this group of men come to apprehend her and you see that a fight is about to begin and then the camera shifts back to outside where Agent Smith shows up and he questions the uh, like the sheriff or whatever about what's going on and he says, don't worry. I've sent several men after her. And Agent Smith looks at him and says, your men are already dead. <laughs> and, and then it's, the scene goes back to Trinity alone in that room with those guys. And you just see her kicking ass and taking names like it's nobody's business. And it was just a powerful moment because technically the men were not already dead, but they were as sure as gone because he knew. He knew that that she was a force to be reckoned with and the resistance was no match for her. You know, I, I recently watched um, Mike Tyson's first title, uh, first title fight um, back when he was undefeated and just a really young boxer, really focused. I believe it was uh, the guy Trevor Burbick. And uh, when Mike Tyson steps in that ring, man, you could see like the fear in this guy's eyes. But, you know, it wasn't there completely. It's like, oh, my gosh, Mike Tyson's going to beat this guy. But once they start boxing. There's a point where the announcer says, this guy wants nothing to do with this fight. He wants nothing to do with Mike Tyson. And he, and he was like, crown the champion right now. It was clear within the first minute of that fight that Mike Tyson was the new world champion. He was, he was the guy to beat, although technically the belt had not been taken from this guy. It was over. Just like, give him the title right now. And there are so many moments like that in life. And I think when people say things like, oh, it's happening, it's coming. You know, uh, it, it's going to be this way in the future. What they really mean is that it's so inevitable that at some point in the future, it's going to be completely obvious and undeniable and no one will have the option of treating it like it's a luxury. But currently you can get away with downplaying it and denying it without facing any social risk. But the day is coming where it's going to be so obvious that people will actually mock you for living in denial of it. That's what people really mean when they say it's coming, but and, it's already here. And to treat it like it's already here gives you such an advantage. In that movie, he says something like, the worst thing to do when something is already dead is to buy an increasing share of a decreasing market. Like, get out now while it's still dignified. Get out now while you can take something with you. You know, I love your sports analogy because one of my hobbies when I watch sports, basketball and football especially, I try to... I try to identify the moment when the game is decided. And in some games, I truly believe this. And again, there's no way to predict whether I'm right or wrong. In some games, it's in the first quarter. In some games, it's in the third quarter. In some, you know what I'm talking about. Basketball is like this. There's like these momentum moments where it doesn't matter who's ahead or behind on the scoreboard necessarily, where a certain sequence of events is happening that maybe favors one team. And you know that just emotionally and mentally, as well as the time on the clock and all these other things, there's some breaking point and one more penalty in a row or one more fumble or one more three pointer at just the right time is like, that was the moment the game was lost. 
Like I love, because there are times where you can actually see it in front of you. There are times when this is why I think officiating in basketball, especially because it's a momentum game is so important. Even though the individual calls aren't that big of a deal, a foul on some guy, he ends up with four fouls. What's the big deal? The timing of where that foul was in a sequence of four or five events over a certain span of minutes where the emotional energy of the team was just at this place where like one more unfair foul and it just might be the thing that snaps. And then it's like, we got him like that Tyson fight, like that punch. He doesn't want to fight anymore. Like now it's, now it's done. And I think that prescience to see causality that agent Smith to, to, he understands the causal chain that's going to happen. And by acknowledging, by treating it as the present because of its causal connection, because of its sort of inevitability in some sense, I think gives you this amazing insight and power that no one else has. And, and I think about the breaking smart series that we've talked about to me is exactly one of those things. That's like all these essays are saying they're not about the future. They're about today. It's already here. The world has already changed. You know, uh, Taylor Pearson had a phenomenal essay, uh, that I just came across the other day. It's called going all in and it's a very long read, maybe 30 minutes. It's well worth it, but it's another one of those where he's talking about entrepreneurship is, this is the the thing to invest in. Don't diversify your investments, either, whether in you know financial sense or in terms of you know spread yourself out and get all these different accolades and resume bullets and whatever, just in case you can take advantage of all these different opportunities. Entrepreneurship, investing in your entrepreneurial ability, that's where it's at. It's not coming. It's not the thing of the future. It is, but the causality is so strong that like it's already here. Like, do you realize it? The old way is already dead. They just don't know it yet. It's like a regime that is already inevitably going to fall. You know, it's like Lord of the Rings. Like once Gandalf comes back, the the evil guys have already lost. They just don't know it yet. They're just, they're fighting battles, but it's, it's over, you know? Um, Have you seen the movie, the big short? No. I I recommend uh, everyone who's watching it to check it out. I won't give any spoilers, but Christian Bell's character has a moment early on in the movie where he sees patterns and those patterns make it very clear to him that it's already dead. And and he makes radical decisions, radical bold decisions that actually cost him important relationships in order to uh, profit off the fact that that the economy is already dead and he sees this coming and he takes persecution And, you know, there are moments where he just looks really wrong, but he just goes all in on this recognition of patterns. And it's a a really great example of how, in many ways, the only people that succeed are the ones who recognize important patterns before everyone else does, and they choose to invest themselves in what they see. Yes, there's a high risk of failure there. But but it's almost it goes back to your earlier point. Don't look for the things that work for everyone else. Look for the things that aren't working for anyone else. By the time everyone has systematized it and everyone's doing it, yeah. you might as well start looking for the next next right. risk to the, take. You the know? margins are so small at that point. You know, tre- I think that's the that's the way I would phrase it. Treat the future as if it's the present. You know. I think that's really, I think about uh, one more example, Kodak is a very famous example in sort of business literature and whatever of getting, getting, you know, disrupted um, because they failed to see the power of, of a technology. So Kodak was the dominant, you know, 
film industry, uh, pictures, photos, whatever they, I mean, they absolutely dominated. They, they looked like they had no threat of anything, no competition. They actually pioneered digital film. They had somebody in house who was working on this and came up with really the first well-functioning digital camera. I don't know if it was ab- absolutely the first, but it's well known. The guy that sort of like, this is the digital camera within Kodak in their R and D department. And they looked at it and all they saw was, eh, our current business model is on selling film. So that's not really going to help us. Why would we introduce that into the market? Nah, let's, let's put that on the shelf. Let's forget about it. The minute that decision was made, Kodak was a dead company. It took 20 or 30 years before Kodak literally went bankrupt. And you could say, oh, they weren't dead. Tons of people had nice jobs there for 20 more years, shareholders, whatever. But the minute they made that decision, they were dead. And anybody at that moment who saw it, who said, no, 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 I can see the chain. I can see what's going to, okay, if you have digital, you don't need film anymore. You can store things infinitely. You can take as many as you want and then you can delete them. You can, I can see where this is going to go. What, what if the internet, this, this thing that's in its nascency and you know, the way information is growing, the way that Moore's law means computing is speeding up. People will be able to send these things wirelessly. You're going to, you start to see that and you see the model we're working with right now is already dead because of the potentiality right here in this thing. Nothing new needs to really be invented now that this thing is here, what it can do. And so if you see it, the person who takes that and runs with it and says, I'm going to build, I'm going to go all in on what the, the inevitable future. I'm going to treat the future like it's already here. Maybe it'll take me 10 or 20 years to benefit from it, but they're going to win. And Kodak is dead. They just don't know it yet. You know? All right. So here's the question. Is it really that hard to detect the patterns of possibility or does it go back to what we discussed earlier? Is it just hard to take the risk of being alone? It's hard to be alone. It's, you know, we all sort of know in some sense that, you know, the kingdom of God is here and it's not yet. We know that like this thing that we think is coming and we kind of know it's coming and everyone sort of knows it's coming. And we're sort of like, I want to kind of be mentally prepared for that. I want to kind of keep my pulse on it and sort of see what unfolds because it's coming. But it's also here. It's already here. Like, that's the secret. It's already here. The resistance force is here. Join it now for that win. I think I think we do know it. I think that insight is maybe more common, that ability, the, the, the vision, as I would call it, to see the possibilities that are alive in the present right now. They foretell the future. They foretell it in a way that I think more people realize um, than they would sort of listen to because we realize it and we sit on it. We say, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I think this this is a likely way things could go. You know, we talked about uh, with Levi on an episode that he filled in for you. We talked about the, the sort of the direction that health and wellness and gene therapy and all these things are moving. Most people would probably say, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty good possibility that in 20, 30, 40 years, the average lifespan will be 100, 120, maybe even 150. That's not too crazy. But how many people are treating that as if it's already the case and assuming I'm going to live to be 150? How will I live my life if that's how long I'm going to live? Will it change my outlook? Will it change where I put my energy? In some ways, it might make me less impatient because I know I can accumulate all this capital. It might like Who's actually living as if that's a reality now? I think most of us are kind of afraid to. Because what if it happens differently than I thought? We kind of let's just wait. Let's wait until everybody acknowledges it as a foregone conclusion. In which case, you lose all the advantage. The margins are beat down to nothing. You can't really take advantage of it. Now you're just floating downstream instead of you know getting ahead of it. 
you know, it, it makes me think about um, a lot of the anecdotes I've heard about divorce, where um, many people who go through a divorce express the, the feeling of being caught totally off guard. I'm totally surprised. I had no idea she wanted to leave or he wanted to leave. And no idea. And then after a little time, they look back and they say, you know, there were a lot of red flags. There were some signs that the relationship was already dead like a year before he or she asked for the divorce. But I didn't want to have that conversation. I didn't want to admit it to myself or I, I, didn't, I didn't want to acknowledge this or talk about this or change that. And, and this happens quite a lot. And, 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 and had, they, had they acknowledged it early on, it could have meant one of two things. Maybe they would have exited the relationship earlier with less complication or by accepting that the relationship as is was already dead, they would have been, a, been able to find a way to reinvent their way of being together and been able to co-create something better and new. And I, I feel like that's an analogy for what's really going on when we feel caught off guard by a lot of these societal changes. We feel caught off guard, but when we look back, the red flags are always there. It's just those red flags force us to be honest with ourselves in ways that are really uncomfortable. Have I spent my last, the last 10 years of my life developing skills that are no, no longer useful? I mean, that may, be, that may be painful to acknowledge, but by acknowledging that, I may find a way to make those skills useful. I may find a way to creatively apply them in a, you know, in a different context, but we got to face those red flags and we got to ask those hard questions. I That's really the problem. Yeah. I've seen this with employees too, where a company, everybody gets excited during the interview process. They like a, an applicant, they hire them like week one or two on the job. It's like, oh, whoa, somehow this is way different than what we thought we were getting in the interview. And you know it, you know it immediately. This is not an employee that's going to work. It's dead. The relationship is dead. But you've just put in all, you, have, you fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy. You've put in all this time and energy and you're like, ah, it'd be embarrassing to fire them a week after we hired them and it'd be awkward. Then we'd have to go through thinking that I'd look like a fool, like I'm flopping, I'm changing my mind. Let's just let this thing play out. So you let them slowly be an inefficient and bad employee for six months, a year, sometimes even two years. And you're sort of trying to accumulate, not because you don't already know it's dead, but because you're trying to accumulate enough easily quantifiable, observable data that other people can back you on so that when you make the decision, everyone will say, yeah, that was an obvious, that was a no brainer. But think about the opportunity cost of that. Think about what you've lost. Think about what you miss out on by not having the courage to treat what you see in the future as a present reality and act on it now to have that boldness. I see people even in careers say, oh, I'm going into a particular type of medicine, but I see what's happening with Obamacare and all these regulations. I see that down the road, I'll probably just be filling out paperwork all the time. I'll be caught in all this stuff that I don't want to be caught in. The industry is going in a direction I don't like with subsidies and whatever else. So, you know, I'm, I'm, that's really disappointing, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm already halfway through med school or whatever. I'm just gonna, and it's like, well, if you see that as the future, what if you treated it as the present? What if you said, I know that's coming. So let's not build a plan that makes me wait until it hits. And then I've got all this, you know, all this lost time. So that's, that's my takeaway for today. That's something I've been thinking about a lot. And I love the, the, the idea of treating your beliefs about the future as if they are the present. I love it, man. And, and you know, I love to 
to bring things to the to the level of self-help and personal development as cheesy as it may sound for some people but one question i like to ask everybody out there and i ask it sincerely what's dead in your personal life i had a friend who studied theater in college moved to new york to become an actor and fell out of love with acting within three years of moving there but continued pursuing it for another decade because he felt he would be an artistic sellout. He knew that it was over. He knew that it was dead, not because he was a loser, not because he couldn't succeed, but because he fought so hard to get there. He went through so much skepticism to put himself in place to pursue his dream that he felt ashamed to admit that he no longer wanted it because his desires had evolved. Many times we fall into the trap of pursuing dreams that we've outgrown, pursuing goals that no longer reflect the person that we've become. We have dead goals, dead dreams, dead aims in our lives that we pursue. What's dead in your in your life? And how is that keeping you from becoming more fully alive? How is that keeping you from embracing the living possibilities of your future? Hey, when you're on the Oregon Trail blazing a path west and uh, one of your oxen gets a broken leg, it's already dead. Just put it down. <laughs> put it down and adjust to the inevitable future. I needed one more metaphor in there. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, hey, recommendations for this week. I'm going with Michael Humer's The Problem of Political Authority. It covers a lot of the stuff that we talked about. And whether you're interested in political philosophy or not, it really offers some amazing insights about the concept of authority and how authoritarianism pervades so many aspects of our society and how the root of most problems is some uh, a concept of authoritarianism. I haven't finished it, but it's, it's an amazing book that's uh, changing the way I think about a lot of things. Michael Humer is bar none my favorite contemporary philosopher um i just find his stuff all phenomenal well put together well structured arguments well written and just brilliant interesting insights uh that's a great one michael humor the problem of political authority um i'm gonna go with the article i reference it's it's not a book but it's it's like 30 minute read it's taylor pearson's uh, and he's been a guest on the show before in fact i'm gonna have to get him back on here because he's just man he i was looking at some of his essays so much insight but uh taylor pearson's article called going all in. If you just Google Taylor Pearson going all in, you'll find it on, on medium or on his uh, website, really, really phenomenal stuff that has that prescience to see what many would call the future as a reality in the present. TK, uh, that's already racist. You just don't know it yet. How's that? <laughs> Bring it all hey, together. Hey, I got to ask you a quick question before we cut out, man. What do you think about the possibility of, of one day, having somebody join Fridays with TK. Uh, I'm cool with that. I mean, the only, the only thing that I've found with more than two people is the awkward delays and people talking over each other. That can be really tough. Um, if we could do it all in, in a studio that has like a, a good mic for three people would be even better, but, but we can do it over, um, zoom or something. Why? Who do you have in mind? Oh, man, I just wanted to put that thought out into the ether, you know, build a little anticipation. Maybe one day, someday soon. Are you we'll trying to replace right me? <laughs> you think I'm already dead as a host? I just don't know it yet. Yeah. <laughs> your your host is already dead. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm 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 open to it. I'm a little I'm a little protective, dude. I'm protective of our little space here. This is like my catharsis because I don't I don't need to do any prep. I don't need to like it's so relaxing. So. I would have to be the right person, man. This is a sacred space for me. We have holy moments here. 
<laughs> I love it, dude. Hey, I'm changing my recommendation to uh, Weekends at Bernie. So we <laughs> talked about being dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, man. Peace out. Peace out. <laughs>